Welcome back once again to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and we've got Victor on the line, and we also have Jeremy Jagus, who is the author and developer of the upcoming, hopefully out by the time we put this episode out, Kithbook Strega. So, welcome, Jeremy. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you. So, can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about Kithbook Strega and, and who and what the Strega are? Well, the whole idea behind the Strega is I always felt that Changeling was missing kind of that fairy tale witch type thing. So, I mean, you could always fill in with a Slua, maybe, or a Red Cap, but their, their own archetypes really don't quite get all the way where you need to go. And so, um, thanks to some interesting entomology, the Strega are meant to fill that fairy tale witchy void. Yeah, I noticed just reading through this a little bit that there's a lot of overlap between the Strega and one of the characters that one of my friends played in a Dark Ages Fae game we did a while ago, right down to the bird association. It's appropriate <laughs> that there's that overlap there. It feels right. Yeah, Puka shouldn't get all the animal associations. Yeah, and I mean, there are lots of other animal kits once you get outside the Cathane. And now I guess there are, you know, there are Selkies. But for the main kith, you're really tied to that capricious trickster mode if you want to play Cathane and animal. Even the Selkies, while it's much less pronounced, they kind of have that. And I like that that's not the Strega. So could, could you talk a little bit about where you came up with the idea for the sort of, I'll say, defining Strega power of, of curses. I think I remember you posting about this in the Facebook group about Changeling like a year ago, a little over a year ago when you were first asking about this. And when you sent us the early release of the book, I it struck a memory and I, I remembered you, you talking about this and balancing it. Can you talk about where it came from and how you felt about it as it's developed and you've played with it? Oh, of course. Well, it's the Malocchio is basically the evil eye. To me, it really felt appropriate that this is something that witches would have. They have the the ability to do, curse people that annoy them, incur their wrath, or they get paid off to do it. I didn't want to make it like too easy where they can just curse people from their lairs, so they, they actually have to be right up within an earshot of the person. I guess, like, Thinner might be a good example, although, I mean, you know, not the best book or movie, but definitely a good example of the evil eye in action. Yeah, that movie ruined my shit when I was, like, eight. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I thought was really interesting, and it made me think about the witch Yubaba from Spirited Away, is what you did with their frailty in, and I don't want to give all the, the juicy bits away, but they have you know, this birthright where they can do the evil eye and kind of curse people. But their frailty is they can't refuse to curse someone if someone asks them. They can like negotiate a price. They don't have to do it for free. But ultimately, if you know someone comes to them and wants something and is willing to pay for it, they have to do it. And at first I thought, oh, that's, that's really abusable. But the same sort of thing happens to Yubaba, not around a, a curse, but around being bound to having to give someone work and it it seems similar and i thought about 
a lot of the witch stories, the whole like dynamic in Brave, where once you know the main character pushed hard enough, okay, you'll get your spell. Did you pull that from those stories? Where where did you come up with that particular tension? Well, the stories definitely played a part in it. That was especially you, Baba, and uh, from Brave. It's been a little while since I've seen that, but as you're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, that is that is kind of like that. It was sort of originally a means to keep them from being too isolated, because the last thing you want to hear is, but what do they do with with your character types? And so it works as an excuse to keep them tied to Kithane society. They can still play it being hermits like they are, but it makes people uh, put in a little bit of work to have to get them. One of my questions when I was reading the Kith description was that you've written them very much to be kind of hermit-y, and th- this answers that question, but in group dynamics, you end up with everybody playing a hermit eventually, and then nobody has any reason to be in the same room together. Yeah, I, I see how that frailty kind of papers that hole over a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciate that you put thought into that. I ran a Mage Sorcerer's Crusade game several years ago, and one of the characters went, I want to play the Verbena Witch out in, you know, the woods. And I was I set the game in Venice. I was like, okay, you can have your node out in the woods. But I, I wasn't really prepared for the level of, ugh, why am I even in the city that that character came with? And it was a challenge. So building something in to mitigate that aspect of the character type a little bit is definitely welcome. Oh yeah, that's hopefully exactly as planned. (laughs) The other thing I noticed that I really kind of appreciate is compared to other kiths that I've seen, it seems like you put a lot of thought into crossover. You know, you tied their backstory into Lilith, which is a good vampire hook. There's a good hunk of text on just how they relate to the prodigals. Could you talk a little bit about how you approach that and, and why you put so much focus there? It all comes back to the entomology of Strega. Originally, there was Strix, which was kind of a an ancient Roman blood-drinking owl thing. A couple centuries later, it's morphed into Strega or Striga, which is becomes a generic term for witch. But once you start to get out to around Romania and stuff, the word has morphed into something else. It's turned into Strigoi, which is, well, a vampire. And they've they've always had their associations with vampires. And since Lilith is generally associated with owls, it just seemed naturally to me that they would consider themselves closely related. I also noticed that you have a bunch of example and associated striga flavored things to spend your background points on and that's always kind of my favorite thing to do when i'm coming up with characters is trying to come up with the flavor that gets attached to their they're not exactly powers but they're kind of powers did you have a couple of like merits or chimera or things that were your favorites oh definitely there is a merit called Gorge Spawn, which is, well, it's kind of gross, actually. What the Strega can do is they can take an animal, well, basically anything they can fit in their mouth and swallow, and they can use their stomach as kind of a, uh, a glamour-fueled forge 
hark it up as an owl pellet. And now it's a, a really gross skeletal, like, one or two dot chimera. It's a very witchy kind of power. I remember there was a story I read once about witches taking bones. I think it was from themselves, but taking, like, knuckle bones and things and using them in some terrible ritual to make their minions. So that also feels right. <laughs> now, for a... Uh... Chimera, I had a, a couple that I really liked. I, I thought that the the restless roosts were pretty neat, you know, walking trees, spooky treants, that kind of thing. But the ones that really grew on me were the, the Strix themselves. They are also kind of cousins to the Strega, but they are entirely chimeric. They're horrible, ghostly monster owls that are born from disasters and such. There's a, a little fiction towards the middle of the book that features probably one of the bigger ones of uh possible disasters but he's very polite yeah i um i was actually wondering about that one because when i read the background chimera for it i was like oh this is like halfway to a lycaean that's kind of fun yeah they came out with a, a lot more personality than i originally had intended in talking about some of the, the chimera, like the trees and the, the deep wood that you talk about, one thing I sort of expected to see, and maybe I missed it, is how the strega feed, how they approach Epiphany. Because as I was reading them, I remember thinking it would make a lot of sense for the strega to feed the way the Gillydew or the Inanime or the Nunihi do. I didn't see anything about that, but I also didn't see anything about their relationship with dreamers. Have you thought about that dynamic much at all? Well, a little bit of it is they like to be spooky. Their revelry is basically PG-13 horror movie stuff. They scare people out in the woods by using Blair Witch tricks. As for dreamers and stuff, I imagine that they are very drawn to the more, the more occult side of things as far as that goes very very peculiar about who they take so i guess so in thinking about like peculiar in who they take do you think that they would be taking people who spend a lot of time out in the woods it almost seems like they would resent the incursion the way you've written them or is it something where they sort of seek out the particular people that they're comfortable allowing in their domain yeah, I imagine a lot of their, their most opportunistic feeding just comes from uh, inspiring that sense of fear and mystery regarding uh, the areas they live around. A little more urban, perhaps, but kind of like Salem's Lot, where everyone knows the house is evil. Everyone knows that there's something weird there, but everyone's mostly too afraid to go check it out, except for, you know, the ones that are really inspired yeah, I looked at some of your pre-made characters, and it looks like the section's not quite in its final form yet, but the paranormal investigator kind of answered the how-do-they-feed question for me, because it seems like the difference between, between positive and negative um, feeding for them is really whether or not the person walks away from it, because I could see that character specifically the paranormal investigator 
tricking people into death trap houses almost as easily as putting on a really good haunted house for Halloween. Oh yeah, definitely. He's a little uh, written as a little more good natured than to to kill people, but definitely to to get a, a good scare out of him if you know he's in need of a, a fix. His quote actually came from kind of a funny place, one of those uh, ghost hunter shows. This family is terrified of this this supposed ghost that's haunting their house, oh, and no. the this the the supposed psychic lady just kind of brushes off the ghost says, oh yeah, you'll just have to live with that. It's the aliens that are abducting your kid that you really, really should be concerned with. And the faces on these people is just horrible. There's these poor people. (laughs) That's the kind of charlatan I actually kind of like. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everyone loves a good, like, horror movie charlatan. They are good, clean fun. So, one thing, maybe just to give people a little bit of a I don't know, an idea of what they'd be getting if they picked this book up. Because Simon mentioned your character templates, and I noticed you did an interesting mix and match with the way you build characters, in that you have the full playable templates, and they kind of remind me of the older Splat books that White Wolf used to release, where you had the playable templates at the back, but they were archetypes. They weren't really characters. They didn't have names, but it was imagining one way that that particular group might develop. You have things like the witchy poo or the assisted living spinster, which I love that. I love like invoking the settings. But then afterwards you also did some actual characters and just short blocks, not the full sort of stat write-ups for them. And it struck me that it's an interesting way to mix and match. Like you could take one of the stat sheets and tie it to one of the stories were you thinking about that specifically it seemed like an interesting game design choice so i wanted to get your thoughts on that uh to be honest it was a lot of just copying what had done before in the previous official kith books and splat books and such the other part is it's an archetype of when strega was originally just going to be the opening two-page spread and maybe a couple sample characters but it steadily grew from there. And once I added in the character archetypes, I was like, well, I can I can still leave in these sample characters. They still have their place. I like how it plays out. It's, you know, just to let everyone know kind of how much book they'd be picking up, although we'd certainly show that on drive through. It's 43 pages, plus you did a custom character sheet, which I, I appreciate that that's in there as well. And it has a lot of little crunchy tidbits, character templates and chimera and a couple treasures. It it had a lot more pick up and go sort of text than I've seen in some other storyteller vault books, which I definitely appreciated. Yeah, my history is mostly for publishing is in the OSR, so I'm I'm used to having a bit more of a mechanical heft to it. I didn't want to leave anything out. You know, so I wanted a little bit of everything for flavor because everyone sort of knows what you're getting into with the older kiths because they've been around for so long. But I felt adding the extra flavor of the chimera, the treasures, the example hollows really helped add in some of that flavor that they are missing from not being around for 20 years. Yeah, I think one thing you did that really does help give people an idea of what they're going to get is 
the cover art in particular is really good and some of the other art through the book is like especially the page right before the splat write-up it took me a minute to realize what the pattern in the foreground was but now since i realized it was the ilunid crest i was just like oh i wonder if they hang out i could definitely see ilunid and and distraga spending some time together um which actually brings up a question i have i've seen more and more commonly in the c20 era onyx path sort of lean towards talking about the noble houses even when dealing with commoners they seem to be emphasizing a lot more commoner membership in the houses is that something that you picture the strega taking part in and if so which houses do you think they'd actually be inclined to join uh, first, honestly, about the picture, it was selected solely because it had owls in it. Um, but yeah, definitely, they would probably have fairly good or bad relations with the Ilunid, since the uh, Ilunid are such renowned sorcerers. They know pretty well the ins and outs of the Strega, so they can get pulled into their machinations whether they like it or not. I imagine most of the more politicky houses, like. Gwydion and Alil, like... probably they don't interact with them as much because they're so out of their depth. They're too easy to manipulate in one manner or another. It's interesting because now that I, you know, asked that question, I've been sort of in thinking through the houses. A lot of the darker, more occult houses, the the witchier houses, if you will, tended to be Scandinavian or Druidic. And you've placed the Strega really solidly in the Mediterranean. So, I don't know, it might almost be interesting to play it out as they maybe aren't members of those houses but have rivalries. It seems like there'd be some fun story potential there. Oh yeah, well, satyrs needed some company down in the Mediterranean. But yeah, I don't imagine like very heavy affiliation with any of the particular houses definitely a bit unlike um say trolls or something where you're very likely to see them in service to someone or another but that mostly goes back to their um we have this weird power people are likely to abuse it if they're going to come and take it we want to make them work for it yeah thinking about that a little bit i think if they had any geographic overlap whatsoever house i seen might be a good choice because they both talk to animals but that just makes a disney princess club <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, the Disney princess potential with with a witch archetype is kind of endless. Oh yeah, definitely some uh, easy to spot some mal- maleficent in there. Just add some primal and you're you're good to go. Yeah, so as you were working through this, you mentioned that it started out as a pretty small project and then it grew. Were there any parts of the book that were particularly difficult for you that you struggled with? when you were starting to to see the whole thing come together? Oh yeah, definitely. The part I look at most critically, like, oh, is it finished? Is that really enough? Is the history section. I'm a big fan of Dark Ages Fae, so I have a hard time separating those two timelines. So I'm like, how specific should I get here? Even though it could just be like weird crossed memories that they have. I know that pain. I know that that pain so well. (laughs) That's that's always the tricky thing with Changeling, is that everybody wants a great backstory, but 
no changeling knows their backstory. Like, whenever I read, like, oh, it's a 20-page detailed history, I'm like, well, I'm going to have great fun proving that all of this is kind of wrong, but not exactly. But it's still the most fun stuff to read. I think my favorite part of that was the Inquisition versus the Mad Straga. That was inspired by something that sort of happened in one of my own games. Yeah, when I read the part about the Inquisition, especially when you specifically invoked the Malleus Maleficarum, I just thought it would be really fun to do a Verbena Strega crossover, which, I mean, is, of course, an obvious play, but one with maybe really old Verbena who remembered that time, or maybe were reincarnated and there's a Strega who remembers that time because they have a high remembrance stat. It, it seems like that's a story that I'd want to play around with. It's not always easy to take out a Verbena, but with as populous as changelings seem to be, once the Hammer of Witches come down, they definitely got caught in the crossfire. Yeah, and I mean, let's be honest, the form the Strega curse takes has to do with doling out ones. And man, if those ones land on a magic roll, mm, nothing, nothing takes a mage out like a bad magic botch. Yeah, just boom. Yeah, it's true. Is there any final part of the book that you really want to talk about that we haven't sort of brought up in the course of the conversation? The uh, the custom art, I guess I would like to give some shout outs to. Yeah, go for it. What art? I mean, a lot of the art I did recognize from the art packs, but were there any pieces that you commissioned or, or did yourself? Oh, yeah, it was all commissioned from Mike Tenebrae, someone that my wife is buddies with on Facebook. He did the kith splat for the overview of the Strega on a Branch. All of the character archetypes are from him. And, of course, the cover, which, wow, came out amazing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, the cover is great. beautiful. It's it's really stunning. And that is, that is Witchy Poo on the cover. She ended up being my favorite example Strega. Just her antithesis being historical accuracy. Yeah, yeah I liked I liked your antitheses, antithesi in the character templates. Well, and I like I also really like that art piece because to me aesthetically it kind of invokes the outcasts, orphans, price, you know, gritty street level aesthetic that World of Darkness trucked in. But like you said, you're filling this place in fairy tales where the witch lives that isn't all that well captured in Changeling. And I feel like you dropped that archetype right into the world of darkness with that cover art piece. It really does a good job of marketing what you're trying to do with the kith. And I, I really appreciate that. Oh yeah. A lot better than my original go at it from uh, just a couple of Facebook filters over uh, woods with an owl. Hey, I'm just going to say, Filters and imaginative use of GIMP got me my cover for my first Storyteller's Vault book, so I'm not going to complain. Oh, yeah, that's actually the first thing I paid for on Storyteller's Vault was uh, Kith Book Fawn. <laughs> well, so I was I actually talking about now. the cover of the mage thing I did, but it's not also an accurate description of that cover. Truth. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> We sound the same, though, so it's okay. Yeah. Um... <laughs>
So there was another thing that Simon and I wanted to talk about a little bit on the topic of Storyteller Vault projects. A set of art cards and realm cards have been released on the Storyteller's Vault by XY RPG Creations. They're two separate products. The art cards are $7.99 and the realm cards are $4.99. And they're meant to be kind of like the spell cheat cards that you can get for Dungeons & Dragons, where you can just put together a hand of cards that represent the powers that your particular player has, and then you have them in front of you and you don't have to fumble through the book while you're at the table. I have to be honest, especially playing D&D, I love those cards. I always have kind of my character's deck handy, and it makes things a lot easier for me. So when I saw this, I was pretty excited. I went ahead and printed them out. You know, before I get into to too much of that, Simon, have you ever really used play aids like this at your role-playing table? No, I've never used any pre-made aids like that before. I'm one of those people who I know my memory is garbage, so my character sheets are like seven pages long. If they don't have like a quick and dirty rundown of what everything does, like they'll at least have the page numbers because I hate being that guy who's like, quick, give me one of the two books at the table between the eight of us. I need to look this thing up and I don't know where it is. So like, I see why that sort of a thing is useful. I just make them myself, basically. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair, and I've definitely done that before with my characters. One of the things I really like about having play aids, it's less about me as a player and more as an ST. Like right now, my current Changeling game mostly has Changeling novice players. So there's been a lot of trying to figure the arts out, and I have a, a printout of just the art section of the book, so I, we don't have to fumble with that epic tome every time we want to look up an art rule, but it's still, there's a lot of time thumbing through that, especially trying to remember which art interacts with which realm in what way. And so having a deck of cards as a storyteller to just hand out to my players, maybe print a couple arts that more than one player has a couple times, that's really nice. And it cuts down on the fumbling with the book dynamic, which I appreciate. Um, yeah, I can see how that would be really useful. I've Changeling's not the worst offender. Um, we've had almost fights over the mage books sometimes. But Changeling's pretty bad too. And a lot of the people I play with don't take copious notes the way I do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, You know, mentioning mage, I don't know how you'd even do a product like this for mage. You could do like a deck of rotes, but so much of what Mage does is beyond your rotes. I mean, it's so mushy. But for Changeling, you know, I thought that it would work pretty well. I printed the cards out, and I actually went ahead and splurged because they're in pretty full color, and I wanted to see what they looked like printed at high quality. So I went to Staples and bought some cardstock and printed them on cardstock, duplex, so front and back to see how they would print. And they're pretty gorgeous. I really only have two printing complaints. The border cuts off at kind of an odd place. It has a shorter, a smaller version of the full yellow and red Celtic knot border, but it just kind of cuts through it. 
The width of the border feels proportional to the text, so I do think it's intentional, but it looks a little weird. And my only other complaint is the backing is not centered properly for printing. Now, duplex printing is not professional printing, and things are going to align a little differently based on the printer, but it was pretty starkly out of alignment. That's too it, bad. Yeah, it's not It's not like it cut into the image or anything, but it's pretty apparent that it needs to be about 15 pixels to the left and maybe like 8 pixels higher, the, the back does, to align, you know, more closely with the front. But they don't yeah, look that's terrible. that's too bad because the backs are really pretty. Oh, it, they're gorgeous. They're really, really attractive. So, yeah, I mean... The font looks really nice. The quality of the image front and back is very good. When you print it out, you can tell it's they're very high-resolution graphics. And the text really covers pretty much everything it needs to. The big things for me, and kind of what I went in looking for, is does it detail margin of success? Because some arts, margin of success matters, and some arts it doesn't matter at all. And that is one of the things that all of these abbreviated descriptions have. It's not the exact text from C20. The Storyteller's Vault doesn't allow you to reproduce that much game text. So it has to be sort of paraphrased, and it is. But it, it lists margin of success. It tends to list how the realm interacts with the art. I think I saw one or two cases where I was expecting to see that, but I didn't. But it's on the vast majority of the cards. And it has a pretty good flavor description of what the powers do and then there's a little tracker at the bottom that has the sort of swirly dot the little bullet things yeah the little swirly changeling bullet dot thing that is used for art levels in the core book and there are five of them on each card and some of them are grayed out and some of them are, are in dark colors and it's supposed to be the number of dots for the level there are a couple cards that have the wrong level only a couple, and you notice it pretty quickly. Protocol is listed as a second level. And then there was one other first level that had two of them. And there's some and copy editing them, issues. Right? And you had the opportunity to use them in a game, right? I did. Just one game, and as it as role-playing panned out, it ended up being more of a social game. So my players didn't use them a lot, but a couple of them used them. And their general feedback was, yeah, that's helpful. It, it has the information I needed. That's great. I think they're worth picking up. Yeah, like I said, my only real complaint is there's some copy editing. There are a couple couple cards where like there needs to be more consistent tabbing between like the margin of success chart. The first three will be formatted one way and then the last two are formatted a little differently. A couple obvious word typo things, but it's perfectly easy to understand anything. There's nothing that actually impedes their function. They just maybe need a little bit more polish. For an ST Vault product and the fact that White Wolf and Onyx Path haven't produced anything similar, I'm still glad I bought it and I'm glad that I, you know, paid to get a printed copy. Yeah, I read through a couple of them and just in the PDF form and they're good looking. They do have that weird border cutoff thing going on on one side that I don't, I also do not understand what's going on there. It looks strange, but... If you tend to play with people who fight over the book, I can totally see why you would want these. Yeah, I didn't purchase or print out the Realm cards, but you can open up the sample on DriveThru and see how the text is described. 
and they seem like they'd be useful. The realm system is a little bit easier too. It's three pages in the book. Yeah, and normally you you memorize your realms pretty quickly and easily because they aren't complicated the way the arts are. It's just oh, what can I target, and you kind of figure that out. But that said, it's a small investment, so it might be nice to have as an aid. And the other thing to mention about like the editorial stuff we talked about, I don't know for certain with the person who created this, but you know it is possible to update your PDFs and republish them. And if you buy the product, everyone gets the PDF. So it's entirely possible that in a few months or whatever, our feedback on the alignment and copy editing might no longer be valid. So thank you all for listening. And thank you, Jeremy, for coming on and talking about Kithbook Strega. It seems like a project that you put a lot of love and attention into. It was fun to read. There are a lot of ideas and story molds for fairy tales that I hadn't even really realized were missing from Changeling, but I can definitely see the holes now. So I appreciate that you put this together, and really I just appreciate more things of quality being on the Storyteller's Vault. So if you are interested in picking this up when we post the episode, we will be including a link to Strega, which should be out when the episode drops. If we finish this early, we'll release it with the book. So I hope everyone enjoys it, and thank you very much for coming on the show, and thank you, Simon, for for co-hosting with me, of course. And I hope that you all join us again on Walking Away from Arcadia for our next conversation.